I remember one day we had this beautiful ceremony. It was in the fall, and we were near that place on the ridge with the golden leaves. And this lady that I had met, her name was Sandy. We came there when she was alive, and she was on oxygen. She had a lot of different health problems, and we were riding around, and we got to that point where that breeze comes through, and she took her oxygen off, and she took a deep breath, and she said, I can breathe up here. And when Sandy died, I knew that her husband and her three children were going to say, that's where we want to go. So that's where we went. And she was buried under some very large sassafras trees. And there was a five-piece brass band. They played us out after the ceremony concluded. And it just echoed through the trees and the woodland. And, you know, it, it just felt so normal and right and beautiful. I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope Is My Middle Name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. Today, we're talking with John Christian Pfeiffer. I am John Christian Pfeiffer. I am the executive director of Larkspur Conservation. I lead Tennessee's first nature preserve for natural burial, a conservation burial ground just outside of Nashville. I first heard of Larkspur one Sunday morning in church when Becca Stevens was preaching. She was talking about this natural burial ground somewhere south of Nashville where they would plant trees instead of headstones. And I held it in my mind ever since. I wanted to find it and I wanted to go there. I still haven't been there, but I did find the man behind the mission, and I'm so excited to get to introduce you to John Christian Pfeiffer. From a young age, John Christian was fascinated by the nature of life and death and how both are part of each other. As a kid, he would wrap dead insects and leaves and give them a proper burial. And as an adult, he spent years in the conventional funeral industry. He began to realize there was something wrong with our traditional approach to death. He wanted to make it more mindful. And so he took what he calls a leap of faith, hopped a train, and spent months traveling the country, asking people what they thought about death and dying. And when he returned, he started a nature-filled sanctuary that helps people connect, feel, and experience their grief in a down-to-earth way with all the time in the world and wide open space to do it. But two things before we go on. John Christian does give a pretty detailed description of the embalming process just in case that's a bit more information than you need right now. And I just want to say, I was concerned this conversation might get sad real fast, but it doesn't. Yes, of course, we talk about death, but there is so much more to it than sadness. When John Christian talks about the end of life, he helps us see, really see, the beauty in the world around us, in the world we get to live in. John Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm so excited. Kate, I'm so excited that our paths have finally crossed and we get to sit down and talk about hope and nature and all of the stuff that we do um, at Larkspur. So thank you so much for having me today. Let's get to it. What was your first connection with nature as a kid? 
I'm this huge nature nerd. My parents are both, they wouldn't call themselves naturalists, but they're naturalists. They know so much about the natural world. Mm-hmm. I grew up on a farm in West Tennessee, uh, and I raised beef cattle when I was a kid. That was my way of learning responsibility. And we had 30 or so acres that we tended to and cared for and loved and grew all of our own food. And my grandparents had a much larger farm, but still on the same scale of providing food for the entire family and community. And I was able to connect with the animal kingdom and the plant world, nature itself, I guess you should say. Mm -hmm. We would have hog killing days, and I'm a vegan or vegetarian now, mostly vegan. That's largely because of environmental reasons. But I'll tell you that growing up in a place where you actually care for the land and the creatures, and then you see their cycles of life in a way displayed right before you, Mm -hmm. really connects you to something that I feel like a lot of people today don't understand or can't really tap into. Yeah. So you're seeing life and death as this regenerative process on the farm. Death, the end of the cycle, still part of the life cycle. And then you start burying bugs. Tell me about that. Oh, sure. I had a bug collection, insect collection, butterflies, all the things. And most of that started with a water spigot and a bucket that sat outside that would catch the dripping water. And a lot of times I would find an insect that had fallen into the bucket of water and it was stranded and had met its demise there. Mm -hmm. It was a time for me to be really close to something that was generally moving fast or trying to get away or trying to hide. And as a little kid, like five, six, seven, to come across something that's just so magnificent, you know, and so incredibly designed and to look upon it and inspect it and marvel over it. Yes. When you look at something with that type of intention, you can't help but want to care for it. And I would find myself running to my mother's kitchen drawer, get (laughs) some of her silverware, flatware out of the kitchen drawer, and I would run out to the woods. And I had created this little space along the tree line near the edge of the road. And it was under these smaller trees, kind of understory. And I would create a little burial for whatever grasshopper or insect that I found. And one day it may be a, a butterfly. The other, it may be a stag beetle. I mean, it evolved into a squirrel that had been hit by a car. Oh, yeah. And then I had a parakeet. That turned into a full funeral with (laughs) a crayon box and um, toilet paper (laughs) for the bedding and all the different things. Yeah. I don't know if I'd seen the public display of reverence for the dead, maybe in a movie or a film. I think that's probably where we all see how to do death. And that's not the place Mm -hmm. you should look for answers on how to deal with death (laughs) in in the movies. But I think... Unless you're watching Harold and Mom. uh, uh, Exactly. I mean, (laughs) that's a classic. But I think that in my own way, I found this way of honoring and connecting with something that was just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, I told my parents, you know, I want to be a mortician in seventh grade, and I'd not been to a big public funeral or anything. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I mean, one day I might want to be an astronaut, but this day (laughs) I wanted to be a mortician. When you told your parents that you wanted to be a mortician, what was their response? 
my parents were kind of like, uh, okay, okay, um, <laughs> that would be good, son. If that's what you want to do, you can be whatever you want to be. My mom always calls me son. <laughs> she said, that would be good, son. When did you first go to an, an actual funeral? It was in the early 90s, and it was for my uncle. Mm. Then in high school, I had a friend that drowned swimming in the gravel quarry, and these all occurred in this little funeral home in our town. Mm. Right after high school, I was still considering, do I go to university? I don't have something that's screaming to me that's saying, this is your path. Mm -hmm. But my grandfather died in 98. You know, he was a patriarch of our family and the family farm. And um, to see my family experience that loss at the age where I was beginning to be able to grasp what was occurring was quite profound for me. And I think more than anything, I felt called to want to help them or do something to ease that weight. And that's really what drew me in. And I had a conversation after the funeral, of course, with the funeral director that had embalmed and led the funeral for my grandfather. He said, well, yeah, if you think this is something you would be interested in doing, you should watch me embalm someone and we'll be able to determine really quickly whether or not this is something you might want to do. And sure enough, one night I got the phone call and he was gone into the middle of nowhere to get this man out of his home. I get to the funeral home and he gets back to the funeral home and it's begun to rain. And it's just kind of really ominous. And I thought, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? But at the same time, my heart was racing and I was so ready for it, you know? And I go into the like 1980s white Cadillac, low top, (laughs) and we pull in there and he gets out and it's raining and we take the man into the embalming room get him undressed on this table. And I'd mostly just watch what's happening. And we got the machine going and the embalming fluid was pumping into the body and the blood was running out of this man's carotid and jugular blood vessels at the neck. And lightning struck and the entire power went out. Oh my God. We were in complete darkness in the basement of the funeral home with this man who had died no windows, and all you could hear was running water. And you just knew this man was laying there dead in front of you and you had nothing you could do. Power was out for like an hour and a half or two hours. (laughs) When the power came back on, we went back into the room and we finished the procedure. And I got home and my dad had waited up for me on the sofa. And I got in and I said, oh my gosh, you won't believe what I've just experienced. (laughs) And I was just beside myself. It's like that electricity that was in the air that night. I felt this closeness to something that was happening. Mm. I felt a closeness to life, even in the moments of death. Mm -hmm. I was at a threshold, and I was doing something really profound. I was doing something that most everybody else was scared to death of. I was caring for somebody one last time. I was doing something to help them. I was doing something to help their family. That's how it all started. I began working part-time at the funeral home. I went into mortuary college, and I just kept moving through the process that way. And I got really close with people in our community and the little old ladies who lost husbands Mm -hmm. and families who lost babies. And lo and behold, I'm living at the funeral home, and I would have friends that died in car accidents. In the middle of the night, we would have to care for their bodies. Oh, my gosh. 
I really just became this sentinel for death in a way, but not death, sentinel for like what to do and how to move through this process and how for it not to be this terrible, awful thing. It is terrible and awful in most cases, but if you look close enough and you get close enough to it, you can see that there's some light in there as you're moving through the process. And I found myself being that person for a lot of people, and that's what kept me with it. Mm. I ended up in Nashville, where I managed a very large funeral facility, and I was there for about seven years until I got to a point where I thought, you know, we're just keep doing this the same way over and over and over again. And I knew that we were doing things that were helping people, but I was like, are we doing enough? Can we do more? Mm -hmm. Creating a way for people to have options to do what's most meaningful for them. Wow. That's how I came to be at Larkspur. I want to go along with you on that journey, but first, a lot of people don't understand what even a conventional funeral process is. Can you take me through what it is, how it happens, what it generally costs, and even the environmental impacts of it? Let's just say if I were to die at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, what would happen next? The hospital staff is going to ask my family or my next of kin, who should they call? And by who should they call, they mean what funeral home? And if you don't know, I'll give you a list. This list is going to have about 50 on it. So you can go through the list and you can select which one. Mm -hmm. At that point, they make a decision and the funeral person comes to retrieve the body. And then the funeral director will say, you know, if it's all right with you, we'll go ahead and get him cleaned up for visitation and we'll do the embalming. And is that what you wanted? Or they'll say, no, we want him cremated. Or no, he was Jewish. He'll be going to the synagogue. But in most cases, people say, yeah, that's okay, because guess what? I know nothing mm -hmm. about what they're asking, but I'm going to go ahead and say yes, because that sounds normal. Right. John's body's embalmed. The blood is drained out of my body, and it's replaced with formaldehyde. Mm. Formaldehyde wraps itself around the proteins in our cells so they don't begin to digest or break down the body. Mm. A few hours after that, the cavity of the person is punctured with a long, hollow needle. It's drained of any contents in the stomach, the heart, the lungs, the bladder, that type of thing. And then it's also replaced with formaldehyde to prevent any further decomposition. The family's met with the next day, generally. They select a casket. They'll meet with the funeral director to do that. They'll write an obituary. They'll generally select some type of an outer burial container or a vault that the casket goes into. Mm. The funeral occurs. There may be a visitation or viewing beforehand. The public passes by, and then everyone goes to the cemetery. There's a hearse that leads the way. Sometimes there's a police car or a funeral escort that leads the way. Uh, you're there at the graveside for 15, 20 minutes, and you get back in your car, and you go home. It's all quite swift of a process. And I think that is because we really avoid death, so we're left wanting to get through something that is very uncomfortable really quickly. And we don't even understand what we're doing. This is just the way we do it. Mm. I think the average funeral in America right now is between seven dollars and $8,000. And then the funeral with burial in a cemetery, including the cemetery cost, is closer to $15,000. Sometimes it's ten dollars to $15,000, depending on whether or not you live in a big city or a small town and all those different things. And that's not even counting what happens afterwards and gathering the family. Yeah. 
Right. Um, before that, we mostly did all of that kind of care in our home, and we had the gathering in our home, and we didn't embalm the body because we were going to sit around and wait to make sure that they woke up. That's why they call it the wake. It was in our parlor at our house. Yeah. That fussy front room that was always covered in slip covers. Your aunt had one. <laughs> um, that weird room that was always kind of the formal room was where generally the casket would go and neighbors would come in. Yeah. And that's the reason they transitioned from parlor to funeral parlor and then to funeral home. Ah. And then the room that was in our house uh, that was typically used for death became the living room. Okay. It's so interesting to me because I feel like when you speed up that process, there's so much room for denial, which is kind of a natural response or a reaction, I'll say, to grief. When my mom died, every morning for months, I felt like I would wake up and I would have to say to myself, brain, no, you can't call your mom. No, she's not here anymore. And then my brain would be like, but how is that possible? And especially then if you lose someone who's directly, like cosmically connected to your existence, like a parent, I think that can also be this impossibility. Mm -hmm. The quick sprint through that process seems like we're taking something from people. What we used to have, which is sort of sitting with this person on the threshold, like you were saying when you were in the embalming room for the first time, feeling like you were part of something. Mm -hmm. It was something that was happening still, right? Absolutely. It's that experience of just rip the Band-Aid off. Right. Get me through it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to experience it. By avoiding those really hard things, it's almost like we lie to ourselves. Yeah. And we tell ourselves that this didn't happen. And we further delay that process of being like, okay, yeah, my mom's not here any longer. That's what we really encourage people to do. We encourage people to slow down and to participate. Whereas God bless the funeral director, but sometimes as funeral directors, we can help too much. Mm. We get in the way of letting people have their experience. Mm -hmm. They need to feel the weight of this loss a little bit. They need to see their person dead. Mm -hmm. You don't need to make them look too alive and too perfect and all the stuff. Mm -hmm. We need people to understand this is a normal part of life. We're all going to die. Yeah, not easy to face, especially with the way our culture handles death. So you obviously came to the conclusion that something needed to change. I got to a point where there had to be more options, and I could not see myself wearing a suit to work every day in a funeral home where I just was doing the same thing over and over, and I made a leap of faith. I left, and I thought, okay, I want to create a more mindful funeral home. I don't even want to call it a funeral home. I want to create products that are beautiful and intentional and not mass manufactured, that families can use for ashes or families can make their own casket. I wanted to create a natural burial ground, a place that was wild and free and open that we could go back to and that you could find that solace in. I took a train trip on Amtrak. Gosh, this was 2012. And I started in Memphis. 
I rode the train to Chicago. So I went from Chicago to Minneapolis to Seattle to San Francisco to Los Angeles. And all along the way, I used it as an opportunity to stop and I might spend a weekend in a town or a week or two weeks and have an experience. But even on the train and off the train, I used this opportunity to be in front of other people that I had no connection to them. In most cases, none of them were experiencing grief or loss. So I used it as an opportunity to talk to them about what they found valuable or beautiful in death and what they disliked about the current system and what they wanted for themselves. So I had that conversation with many, many people and I used the whole train trip as an opportunity to really restart and reboot my training. What was it like to approach strangers with these pretty heavy questions. I mean, people aren't generally just on a train thinking about what they find beautiful in death. Right. So the funny thing about a train, everybody's kind of vulnerable. We're just sitting somewhere for a couple hours till we get to our next stop. So you may sit next to someone, you may share a meal with someone, and everybody says, where are you headed? Yeah. What are you doing when you get there? Mm-hmm. You know, some people are just on their way to work. Some people are going to see the eclipse. And here I am, this mortician that's trying to reboot the system. And all I want to do is ask you some questions about death. (laughs) And when they found out that that's what I was doing, they had lots of interesting questions about death and the funeral world and why things are the way they are. And that was an easy window for me to ask them questions. Mm -hmm. Are there any interactions that stand out to you in particular? One lady told me of her plans. Her husband had already died. She had everything organized. It was essentially a cookie-cutter version of what he had done. And that's pretty typical in America. But there were a few people that were really, like, they hadn't experienced a death, so they didn't have a roadmap. Mm -hmm. They wanted a tree planted over their grave. Or they wanted some form of a celebration. They didn't want an excessive amount of money spent. They wanted to make sure their family was taken care of. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to be a burden is one of the things that I heard over and over again. Mm -hmm. One lady wanted her ashes mixed into acrylic paint. Mm -hmm. She wanted her family to have the responsibility of painting this portrait or picture or whatever they wanted to illustrate with her ashes in paint. And then she would curse them by requiring them to pass around this painting to be hung in their home. And every year at Christmas, it got exchanged and someone else had to take responsibility of it. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And she said, I want Bonnie Raitt's Someday I'll Lead the Parade. Yes. It's essentially about when someone dies and they lead the parade, meaning they're in a hearse and being carried to their resting place. Gosh, don't even get me started on music and death. I I have a hobby of making a playlist for my funeral. (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad you do. That's the first step. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds creepy and morbid, but it's actually really cathartic. I recommend it. I recommend it. Yeah, I have a a very large playlist that if anybody wants access to it, just let me know. (laughs) I I actually do. Um, (laughs) So... In that process of hearing all these wild and beautiful sort of plans that people were concocting for their transition, did anything especially surprise you or even make you feel sadness around it? Nothing made me surprised. And I was not surprised at all by the fact that most people were kind of shying away from the conventional funeral mm-hmm. and, and the way things were being done. Society has changed so much since funeral homes became a thing. And 
I just kind of took it as a as a calling card that said, hey, keep going. Mm. So when you come back from the train trip, what happens next? In January, I received a phone call. And that phone call came from Don Welch and Becca Stevens, who were people that were working diligently to foster and kindle this idea of creating natural burial in Tennessee. And how it all came to be was Becca, who's a social entrepreneur and an Episcopal priest and um, barefoot badass, if you ask me. (laughs) Agreed. She had been on a hike with her best friend, Tara, and they walked through the woods at Warner Parks on a regular basis. And this particular day, they'd been hiking, and they came across some old stones and some uneven ground Mm. and discovered that it was a slave burial ground from the old Bellmead Plantation. Mm -hmm. And they just had this moment of overwhelming grief. And they thought, how tragic these experiences must have been. And it's a shame that they were pushed to the edge of the property in a place where no one would see them or find them on unusable ground. And then they said, but also what a beautiful place this is now, that it's the largest park system in Nashville-Davidson County, and it's protected, and it's a thriving ecosystem, and it's alive. Mm-hmm. Becca had had several members in her family die, and as a, a leader of a church, she'd had to help a lot of people understand what to do, even with finances, how to move through grief, and how to work around the current funeral system to create a place for people with limited or no income. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, we should really try to figure out a way to do something like this on a different scale. So this is where you come into the process. So Becca reached out to you, and when was that? That was three months after my train trip, and we connected, and Larkspur took root. It's named for the spring ephemeral that blooms on our property, but also across Middle Tennessee. That was 2013, and we purchased land in 2017, and we opened our preserve in 2018 for our first burials. We've had 135 burials to date. So I've never been to Larkspur. I've heard a lot about it, and I actually have dreamed about it. And I would love for you to take me there. What am I going to see and hear and smell in those Tennessee hills? It's just an experience. You just become enveloped in this pristine, quiet, nature-filled sanctuary where we come when we need some solace and some privacy and some quiet just to get away from the noise of our everyday world. But it's also a place where we come when someone dies and we want that experience, that sacred ritual and connection to nature to help us move through something that's extremely difficult. Right now, the meadow is in full bloom of our uh, flat top goldenrod and tall goldenrod and iron weeds and passion flowers. And I'll tell you the truth, you might see a rattlesnake. It is it is their season and they're <laughs> one of the most beautiful creatures, quite elusive, but occasionally I will see them crossing the trail and um, I just give them their space and they go about their business. But you get to really experience a bit of everything at Larkspur. We're located on the Highland Rim, northeast of Nashville. 
And it's an incredibly biodiverse region of our state, but also the region of our country. Mm. Uh, and by biodiversity, I mean we have an incredible topography and change in ecosystem that enables us to host and be home to so many different plant and animal species. When we say a living memorial, it truly is. Have there been any moments for you there that you could describe where you were just maybe alone on the land and outside of yourself? You're just struck with awe and wonder. Hmm. I go up to the very top of this ridge and and we have a bench for hikers and I'll find myself sitting there. And it's generally in the fall because in the fall, the leaves of the maples that grow on that ridge line They go a golden yellow orange. And when you're sitting there, you almost feel like you're in an Instagram filter. (laughs) And the wind blows through those woods and across the woodland oats that grow on the forest floor. And you just feel this serene connection to the place. You can feel something through the soles of your feet. You hear the birds. You see shadows from the clouds. I think it's moments like that that I'm most easily able to calm down and connect to whatever source is for anyone. But for me, nature is kind of my God. Yeah. What does it really mean to be a conservation burial ground? A conservation burial ground is an open area or open green space that is in need of preservation, restoration, and care. In our case, we purchased 155 acres that sat adjacent to a state natural area called Taylor Hollow. And in that state natural area was a biodiverse ecosystem with some very rare and endangered threatened plant and animal species. Mm. So that was an ideal place for us to begin Larkspur because what we would do is we would create a sound buffer an ecological buffer that would further protect that pristine ecosystem. But there were open meadows where farm crops had been grown. There were barbar fences through the woodlands where cattle had grazed. So this property had been degraded. So it needed help and attention. But what it needed more than anything was protection from urban sprawl and subdivision mining and logging. So by placing a conservation easement, which is a third-party legal instrument that is held by a third party, in our case, the Nature Conservancy, we give all the rights to the land and how it can be used away. And by giving them to an organization like the Nature Conservancy, we lock into a legal binding contract that prohibits the way it can be used forever. Mm -hmm. And we've begun mindful natural burial, which doesn't allow any chemical embalming, any plastics, metals, concretes. Anything that naturally will not return to the earth cannot be placed in the ground at Larkspur. And the burials themselves become active moments of restoration within the ecosystem. Mm. That really takes the idea of creating a grave space and bringing it to life and creating this living memorial that really is something that is appealing to people. And you have an open green space that now community can call home and visit every day during daylight hours for mindful hiking and recreation, nature study. And then you come there when something tragic happens, something heavy. It's a safe place for you to move through those moments in life. But it's a place of nature. And life is nature. Death is nature. We are nature. Mm -hmm. 
it's important that we return our carbon to the soil rather than cremate it or pump it full of chemicals that prohibit it from being a useful source to stabilize the soil, our plant communities, and provide pollinator habitat. All that does is it's really reinforcing and helping us pull more carbon out of the atmosphere. So a conventional burial, like what are some of the environmental impacts of that? Generally in America, on average, according to the National Funeral Directors Association, we bury about 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde-based embalming fluid in the ground every year. There's an embalmer that's tasked with applying that chemical to the person's body, and breathing those vapors cause lung cancer Mm. on a common basis. And we use enough fossil fuel to cremate a body to drive across the country, and that's one body. Wow. And then enough steel and caskets to um, rebuild the Golden Gate Bridge every year. Oh, my gosh. So there's got to be a sustainable way that we do all of these things. There's sustainable ways to grow fibers for us to create our burial receptacles in. There's no reason that we should embalm everybody. Sure, there may be a certain situation where that's required, but generally it's not. And it's just important that we start thinking, hey, what's my impact here? Mm-hmm. And again, when it's something so challenging and so difficult as death, we don't consider any of the aspects because we just don't want to consider them at all. Mm. And now with Larkspur, we're working with communities and funeral homes and funeral directors and healthcare providers and other communities around the country to really share the word of conservation burial and how impactful it can be on many, many levels. It helps people ease into the idea of what death can look like because it's not actually as scary as what it's been made to be in the movies. Yeah. So tell me what the process is like when you have a burial at Larkspur. Generally at Larkspur, when we come to meet a family for the day of a burial, we will gather with them at the trailhead and we tell them everything that they're going to expect. And the first thing is that we're going to pick up an old tradition that's been used in cultures around the world to walk to the gravesite. And we're going to go into nature and we're going to seek solace and comfort in the ecosystems. Mm. We'll walk through the cedar glade. We'll walk up the ridge and we'll go into the meadow that's full and blooming of grasses. We'll pass through the woodland and we'll come to the gravesite where the casket or the shrouded body or the willow basket is placed that holds the remains. And then we allow everybody to come around and get really close to touch the body, to touch the casket, to walk up to the grave that is open and look into the floor of the grave and look upon the flowers that we've placed there. We create the same intention with every grave and it's lined at the bottom with flowers and a meditation, if you will. That's quite beautiful, and it's also quite scientific as it's a vital nitrogen-rich bedding that the body will be placed on, and it will aid in the natural reabsorption of the body back into the ecosystem. As the family becomes comfortable, they may sing songs, say a prayer, have a religious leader that's there. Anything that the family wants to do, they're welcome to. Sometimes it's a toast, sometimes that's playing of music. And then when they're ready, we take ropes and we pick up the casket, we pick up the basket, we pick up the shrouded body, and we walk over the grave with it. And we slowly lower and we let the fibers of the rope pass through our hands. And as we're doing so, we feel release and we let go. And 
we place the body into the grave and begin shoveling it closed, one person at a time. And after everyone's had a turn, we will begin more actively filling the grave until it's completely closed. And there's a mound of soil and we will place pine straw over the top and then cut flowers and flower petals, anything the family has brought. Mm. We will place a GPS marker on the gravesite, a medallion that's stamped with a person's name, and we'll record the GPS. And then in the later months, we might do a memorial planting of a tree or wildflowers and grasses. And if a family wants a native stone, we'll have a native stone carved with the person's name and their years. And then when people come back to visit the gravesite, they can type into our website the person's name, and it will open their life story, Mm. and it will allow them to click a button that opens Google Maps showing where the burial occurred within the nature preserve, and they can walk on their own privately through nature and find where the person is buried. We really want to take away a lot of the boundaries that tell people how to do something Mm -hmm. and allow them the space to create something meaningful for them. So what happens if a person dies suddenly and they hadn't planned it out? Can they still be there? Happens all the time, more commonly than not. And generally, the first thing we're going to say is don't rush. Take a breath. Take care of yourself. Mm. And then we'll discuss, where do you live? Do you have a funeral director in your area that you know? If they say no, we will give them options of funeral homes in their area. If we know of one that has had a burial at Larkspur, we will tell them, this funeral director has had a burial at Larkspur, and they know everything to do. Mm. And then when they're ready, they call that funeral home, and they provide simple transportation, sanitary care, and refrigeration of the body. No embalming. No fuss. If the family needs to come into the funeral home and view the body, they can do that. Mm. Refrigeration will hold the body for days to weeks to a month without any type of major decomposition occurring or breakdown. And that enables us time to invite family members that may live a plane trip away Mm. and schedule according to the weather because nobody wants to do a picnic in the rain. And we encourage people to think of what we're doing as a hike or a picnic. So that's how people come dressed. (laughs) And they will select a site within the nature preserve. And if there's a spouse that wants to be buried next to their husband, they can let us know and we'll reserve the adjacent space for that spouse. But a gravesite is not selected until a death occurs or until a death is imminent. And we do that because... We're in a living memorial, a breathing ecosystem, Mm -hmm. and we want to allow the ecosystem to grow and thrive and flourish. That being said, we don't mow over this space and keep it a mowed lawn with gridded out squares that are select and checked off as they're used. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times families will walk through and they will pass a butterfly or they'll come to a spot where the sun hits or there may be a tree and they say, this feels right. Where in this area is a suitable location where we can safely inter the body and create a moment of restoration? You said that the body is in a casket or swaddled? Swaddled in a shroud, which is a cloth fabric. We actually make our own shrouds at Larkspur. We use cotton and a different folding technique that I created just using my mind and how I've cared for bodies for so long. I just 
thought there's got to be a way to do this that makes sense. And it can also be beautiful and it doesn't have to look like a pillowcase. <laughs> right. And sometimes we will layer in different cloths, like from a grandmother's quilt or a baby blanket. And then sometimes it's a simple pine coffin that was handmade by the family or by the local community craftsman here. Or it's a um, willow basket that's made of a sustainable grass that can be woven and it's very lightweight and low carbon footprint and can be buried easily and it'll return easily. So there's different options there for families. Has there been a moment where you were working with a family at Larkspur or burying someone there where you just had this feeling, this is exactly what I'm meant to be doing? Oh uh, Yeah, it happens every single time. Mm. But I remember one day we had this beautiful ceremony. It was in the fall. And we were near that place on the ridge that I was telling you about with the golden leaves. And this lady that I had met, her name was Sandy. We came there when she was alive and she was on oxygen. She had a lot of different health problems. And we were riding around and we got to that point where that breeze comes through. And she took her oxygen off and she took a deep breath and she said, I can breathe up here. And when Sandy died, I knew that her husband and her three children were going to say, that's where we want to go. So that's where we went. And she was buried under some very large sassafras trees. When I was digging the grave, I gathered up some of the sassafras roots and took them home with me. And I washed them up and I, I boiled them in some water and I made sassafras tea that I took back the next day and we served at the burial when we buried your body there on that hill. And there was a five-piece brass band, mm. and they played, and it just echoed through the trees and the woodland. You know, it just felt so normal and right and beautiful. You know, and I still have people that tell me about that ceremony and that day that they were there and how different and unique and purposeful and right it was. Yeah, when you were in the conventional funeral world and you mentioned burying some friends you knew, who, someone who died in a car accident and things like that, mm -hmm. what was that like for you? Unreal. Yeah. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about death. <laughs> My own death, someone else's death. You know, it's a part of the fabric of who I am and I've built it into my daily life. And as you get older... Your days just become more and more limited and numbered. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a scary thing. I think that means today's the first day of the rest of my life, so I have an opportunity to do something really powerful with it. It may be in helping the lady across the street with her yard work. It may be in calling my mom and having a conversation. It could be just going to the creek and putting my feet in the water. There's an opportunity for us when we lean into death to not take life for granted so much and to live a more meaningful and purposeful life. Are there days, though, even though you have this wide-open perspective on death and it being part of the cycle, are there days when you're afraid to die? Yes. I'm still not 100% not afraid to die. I'm not like, oh gosh, yes, today's the day I'm going to die. I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever really like that because right. we don't understand what happens after death. There's some religions and different beliefs and stories and things we can tell ourselves. 
And all of those sound quite fascinating and wonderful. But nobody's ever said this is exactly what happens. The more that you imagine it and think about it and maybe plan for it, write down some wishes, talk to people about it, that takes some of the sting away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever buried a loved one at Larkspur? I have not. Not yet. But I will. And um, that will be a day that I just don't know. You always think of losing your person or your parents or your friends and what that's going to look like. And for so long, none of my family or friends have been buried this way. Mm. To be able to do this for people that I don't know is super powerful. I can't imagine what the feeling is going to be like when I get to do this for someone that I love. Yeah. I've been talking a lot about Larkspur in anticipation of our conversation, and some of the responses I get are, well, I just want someone else to take care of it. I don't want to have to make the decisions. Do you know how hard it is when you lose someone to actually think clearly? And it's like, yes. Mm -hmm. So yes, these rituals exist for us, but maybe like you were saying, there's a reason that they are evolving as our culture is changing. There's something that is going to make more sense for us now, but also in a way it's so beautiful that it's just hearkening back to who we are, who we've always been as humans mm-hmm. on this planet mm-hmm. and reconnecting with that very, very basic process that has been happening for all of time. Right. What these days and the work that you're doing brings you hope? Hmm. I find hope in thinking about what we're doing at Larkspur. Maybe this is just the beginning Mm. to a whole new, better way of living and a better way of dying. Better for the planet. Mm. In the daunting face of the challenges that we have with the environment and climate, what if we consider this is not the beginning of the end, but the beginning of saving everything? Mm -hmm. I say that about death, too. What if this is the beginning of creating a relationship with death and life that's going to make us so much better, more responsible, more present humans. And I find hope in that. Mm. I find hope in the trees that we plant on graves. I find hope in the hands, the little hands of the children that we hand a shovel of soil to Mm. and we watch them cover over their grandparent. And their parents look to me and say, I don't know how we'll ever take them to a normal funeral again. They will be so confused. (laughs) You know, I find hope in all of those little moments. I find hope in nature in the woods. Yes. I think hope's there all the time. You just have to look for it and be open to it. You have to be understanding that you can have a little bit of say in that hope, too. You can help create hope. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for helping create hope today. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. I am beyond grateful to John Christian for helping us see how our approach to death and dying can actually be a celebration of life. You can learn more about Larkspur at larkspurconservation.org. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted by me, Kate Tucker. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kate Tucker Music. If there's someone you think belongs on this show, please send me a message. This episode was produced by Christine Fennessy with editing from Audrey No and executive produced by Rachel Swaby. Our sound designer and engineer is Mark Bush. Music by the fantastic artists at Epidemic Sound and me. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and visionary at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is My Middle Name can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It would mean so much to me if you would follow, rate, and review the show. 
Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. <laughs>